Hello and welcome to the How The Fuck podcast. This week I have a genuinely exciting guest, Louis Bonjour Bonjour Grenier, the host of the marketing podcast Everyone Hates Marketers and a senior marketing strategist at Hotjar. He's interviewed every famous marketer there is out there in about 160 interviews over the last four years. And in this podcast, we talk about a concept from an up and coming course that he's going to be teaching on radical differentiation, how to stand the fuck out and the four steps you need to take to discover your strengths, double down on them and leverage them to stand out in any market so you can drive growth and cut through the noise. Before we jump into the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe. We've got a crazy lineup over the next few weeks with a ton of senior marketing leaders sharing in detail the processes behind their stories. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Hey, Louis, welcome to the How The Fuck podcast. Let's start with Everyone Hates Marketers. What made you start it? Well, thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk to me. So what made me start Everyone Hates Marketers? I wish I could tell you a story that, you know, something that happened one day where I had this kind of brilliant idea that made me, made me think I should start a podcast to fight against marketing bullshit and go super practical and all of that. But uh, it, it's, it's not what happened at all. I think to, to truly understand the context, I have to kind of bring you back to Maybe at this stage, I'm afraid to say, but I think it's 13 years ago, at least, or 14 years ago, where I read my first book on marketing and not really marketing, but more psychology. I was in Paris visiting my older brother and he had this book, which is the equivalent of the Childini book, you know, uh, Persuasion, right? So it was a French version, not a translation, but like a French psychologist who was talking about like principles of persuasion and stuff like that. And that's when I, I started to really like the idea of marketing. It took me years after that to actually get into the career of it and the point of view that i have from the podcast and what i'm trying to fight against which is the fact that you know you don't need to use sleazy shady aggressive marketing tactics to succeed it kind of developed over the years it, it took me a while to kind of externalize it to the point where i knew this was my fight in a sense so it took me it took me years it took me an agency that failed it took me me getting pissed off and pissed off about stuff it took me uh understanding how to actually pick a villain you know, and go at it to to make people believe in what you have to fight against and what you have to offer to go to the point where, okay, I can, I can do something like that. So it's not a linear journey. There is a lot of points where I came back maybe 10 steps. There is a lot of moments like that. And what accelerated it to the point where I was pretty clear on my, what I wanted to fight against and fight for was when I started to share stuff with the world, you know? I think when you stay in your own head and don't do anything, don't share anything, just consume stuff instead of creating stuff, that's when things could be quite slow but you know as soon as you put stuff out there that's when you get feedback from people questions and you start to refine your your points of view so that's a long answer to a simple question but i want you to be clear on that and for example what you're doing with this podcast and your site is a typical example of you know creating something and, and developing your point of view as you go you just you can't develop a strong point of view without creating instead of consuming i believe definitely definitely and how long have you actually been doing the podcast now almost four years now so i think we have around 160 episodes if i'm not mistaken some of them are replays i, I like to kind of republish past episodes because i to me they are very evergreen in a sense we don't talk about fads and trends or anything like that so even an episode has been published three years ago is still relevant today for the most part i try to ship i mean i don't try i ship every tuesday without fail for the last almost i think that's something that's actually super difficult to get right i think the consistency of doing that for four years it's like crazy it's so hard to do this when you've had such a busy week it's like we both work full-time somewhere else so it's so hard to like if you've had a particularly busy week get this right of course and that's understandable, right? I mean, it's very tough to do what you're doing and, and, and I applaud you for doing it and to get started. But that's what separates people who, who are very well known in the industry, who have a brand from people who struggle is consistency. You know, when you're consistent, when you ship every time on the same at the same time, you get feedback, you build mental availability for people. They remember you and it forces you to get organized. And when you show up, show up, show up for years and years and years, you kind of build a fort, you know, you build the castle that is so high no one can no one else can climb it no one else can can seek uh, and say that they have the highest you know and that's why it's difficult but keep keep at it because if you don't then it's going to be difficult to start again and that's what separates people who you know anyone can do something every day for a month 
but it's very, very tough to do, to keep going after that. So it's normal to feel this way. But again, I think it's, if you push through, that's when the, the magic happens. When you first started the podcast, did you go into it with that mindset, knowing that you're going to be consistent and show up for years? Yes. I made a promise to myself on the back of mistakes I had made in the past. So when I started my career in marketing, no one knew me. I was making all the mistakes in the book. I was My first job was in a, for a startup. I worked in marketing for them for three years. I, I moved to a different, lot of different jobs. I did a lot of sales at the end as well, meeting clients face-to-face, trying to sell our solution. And I had 20 grand in my savings and I decided to launch a business myself, thinking that I, you know, I know enough, I'm an expert and blah, blah, blah. So I wanted to launch a software company and in turn into an agency pretty quickly because I had to make money to make money. And no one knew me. I had no credibility, no authority, no network, and no proper expertise. I picked a service that wasn't in demand for people who didn't care about it. So everything was a uphill battle. Like, you know, it's, it's like, it's like the feeling was you're in the middle of a massive river and you have to walk you know against the current you know it's just like constantly every day for two years which made me burn out right so that 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 at the end i i, I realized that i was doing everything wrong and i'm glad i did it but i realized all the mistakes i made so since then i made a promise to myself whatever i start next whatever business i plan to start i'm never going to do it until i know that i have a group of people who believe in what i do who trust me i have some authority you know people trust what i have to say and yeah i just promised that to myself so i'm just going to show up show up for, for, for a very, very, very long time, give an abundance of confidence to people. And then only then will I even start thinking about potentially starting something. So I was selling conversion rate optimization, right? Which is a specific set, a specific kind of type of services in Dublin to companies who didn't really have enough traffic to get value from it. You know, I was trying to sell that to, to kind of startups and, and smaller businesses, but they had no need in, in, in CRO. And the other thing is it wasn't in demand. Even, even, even if they had the need for it, potentially, hypothetically, no one was really looking for it. No one, there was no trend, you know, pushing me in the right direction. If you compare that to, I don't know, to growth, the, 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 the function growth, like growth marketing, everyone is talking about it at the minute. You know, I didn't follow a trend either. I mean, I can list the number of mistakes, but like so many of them, I just did everything, a lot of things the wrong way, yeah. but I learned a lot through it, you know, having to sell stuff, understanding, you know, what to say to people to make them interested, understanding how to build authority, how to show up, building mental fitness as well. Like, you know, when, when you don't know whether you're going to make, uh, be able to pay yourself a salary next month, it kind of prepares you for, for the next, the next steps. And nothing is as bad as that after that, you know? It sounds like you learned a lot from, from that period of time, like without going through and making those mistakes, you wouldn't be where you are today. Exactly. You, well, you, you need to start something, you know, that's, that's the mistake people make. They, they, they fear that. So they don't, they never start. You do need to start and you will make mistakes. Yeah. I think I got quite lucky when I first started this because I got some quite quick feedback saying people were liking it. I was getting like um, some good views and I found a channel that bought me like my first bunch of listeners. But I can imagine people not wanting to start businesses or, or failing them early when they kind of realized that it wasn't kind of getting the or having the effect of going as far as they thought it would. But I think, yeah, right now we have like a huge trend for podcasts and LinkedIn and and marketing stories and things. I guess that we are both on that kind of trend. Exactly, yeah. But this is this is exactly the point of 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 picking something that is in demand, so you don't go against the current. You know, podcast. There's when you look at the intersection. When when you're in a market in a category, when when you hang out with people in the same industry and whatnot, you kind of naturally pick up on trends, but you need to be externally aware of them in a sense. So you know, as you said, LinkedIn is one. LinkedIn is very much at the minute as the, at the time we record this episode, right? It's 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 a channel that is used in our industry a lot because of the organic reach, the fact that you can reach a lot of people for free and a lot of people hang out there. Then you have the podcast side of things. The podcast is growing as a channel. So that's another one, right? As I mentioned, growth, growth marketing, growth hacking, all of, all of this kind of stuff are like stuff that people talk a lot about. Then you have the kind of the newer generation, the Gen Z type of people under 25. I don't want to go into the cliches, but mm-hmm. they have been brought up in a time where things were quite tough. So they, they tend to be quite entrepreneurial. And again, I'm making overly general, a big generalization. But you see, you have confluence of trends that just 
push people towards learning marketing, whether they want to launch a side project, launch their own company, join a, a marketing a company, a company in, in the marketing space, do you know? So when you think about it this way, yeah, if you can put yourself in the intersection of all of that, it's much easier than just going against the grain on an obscure set of services that no one really is asking for, uh, using a channel that no one is using or not using anymore. It's just, it's just night and day. It's, it's, it's completely different. So what is it do you think that makes your podcast stand out and so successful? So I, I engineered it uh, very in, in a similar way than what you described. So when I launched it, I had a backlog of around 10 episodes. And I, I know it's a cliche, it's such a cliche, and I'm sorry to say it, but I kind of did it for myself. I wanted to learn from the best, but I didn't want to learn. Like what, what I did from the very start is that I leaned against a frame of reference. So I leaned against something else. And to me, the enemy in my head was all of those marketing podcasts or conferences or YouTube channels talking about marketing in super generic terms, using buzzwords everywhere. They clearly had no fucking clue what they were talking about. Or if they did, they really didn't show it. And I got sick of hearing the same nonsense and buzzwords and all of that to the point where, you know, I wanted to hear from people who, who had the same point of view than me, like people who were sick of it as well. So I deliberately picked an enemy in my head, a villain, something to, to, to frame the podcast against. And I deliberately did the opposite of, of what they were doing that didn't, to me, that contributed to to the, to the issues that I have with the podcast. So for example, one thing that a lot of marketing podcasts do is they tend to just talk about the guests and who they are for the first, you know, 45 minutes without even talking about actionable stuff. They would never question the guests or, or, or question whether what they're saying is right or wrong. They would just agree with everything. You know, it, it, there's a lot of small stuff like that. And I just decided to do the opposite. So when I started, I seeked feedbacks right away and I asked people, you know, what would you change and whatnot? And I just doubled down on it. So one thing that I think works pretty well for the podcast is that I'll jump in straight away into practical subjects. So I kind of do the opposite. So I, instead of starting with a guest, I start with the topic and I quiz and I never really take anything for for granted or face value as question, question, question. I'm not afraid to, to, contradict, to contradict them and I'm having a real conversation. And I think that changes from the status quo of marketing podcasts that are very usually boring where you, 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 you talk buzzwords all day long. It's never specific. You jump from one subject to another. You talk about who they are. It's, it just was, yeah, it went against the grain. And I don't know why no one else has done it this way, but I guess it's it's just my personality as well. So that's the other thing. It's the intersection of your strength, what people want, and what others are not doing. This is when things become super interesting for you when you sell something or create something like, like what you did as well with your podcast and your site. The way I've discovered was working pretty well is that when, when people have to talk through a practical, practical subject and go through actionable steps, they naturally talk about the experience. They naturally talk about who they are throughout it, but they're not doing it in a very uneasy, ugly way from the start, you know, say, hi, I'm Louis, I do this. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's much more natural and, and they just, it transpires throughout the steps that they're talking about, the practical stuff. They have to talk about past experiences. They have to talk about the job they have now or the job they had before. And they get it, you know, I think, you know, this is one of the key to standing out in general is you, 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 you can't stand out while making your curry less spicy or while, you know, rounding off the edges. You need to double down on a few things and forget about the rest. You can't do everything for everyone. You can't create average stuff for average people. So therefore you must elevate a very, very few specific things and forget about the rest. And this is it. Obviously, I know that I'm not going that in depth about guest lives in the podcast, but I made peace with that. I can't do everything, right? And what I do best is going through very, very, very practical stuff without the buzzwords, you know? So actionable and no fluff. Those are the two words, the combination of the two that makes everyone as marketers a different podcast, I hope. Do you have any examples of other people who have done this really well, this kind of radical differentiation? Plenty. So, I mean, not necessarily people, but I guess I can, I can tell you a few examples in completely different industry of people who create stuff that are both compelling and different. And this is what, this is what radical differentiation is about. So compelling because it's something that a few things that you do very well that they like, uh, that fits the job that they have to do, the pains that they have and stuff like that. And different, meaning it's, 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 it's the only thing, the only whatever that does 
that, you know? And so when you have the intersection of compelling and different, this is when you have radical differentiation. I mean, one example is is in Japan, right? Uh, the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. I don't know if you've heard no. this guy who only specializes in doing sushi. He has a restaurant of I don't want to say something stupid, but I think 20 seats top. It takes you, you know, maybe only you're going to need two years to make a booking and get there. You know, the, the, the waiting list is that high. He only does sushi and only does 12, you know, the 12 course one. He changes it every day, but he only does that. And he does it so well that he's the best and the only one in the world doing it to the two, you know, to that. So he rises to the top by doing this. A completely different example would be like completely different would be there's a, a product that I bought recently called Beanbud and it's very very similar story in terms of they focus on the very one very small job small pain yeah. but they do it so well that they dominate the market so it's only for for people who have very smelly beans and they don't want to clean them and you just literally pour it in and you know it does the job and the packing is a little bean as well i mean they go you know, all in into this small little niche market, but yet they dominate the market because they were willing to take a risk focusing on one thing and forget about the rest. Because this product that could probably do, probably could clean the floors, probably could clean windows if you want to, you know what I mean? But they only focus on one little thing. Let me take another example. There is a, a software that I use, Workflowly, which is basically some sort of a, it's not like, it's not like Google Doc. It's, it's, it's kind of a bullet point software. If I, if I say so, you, you, you basically create list and they only do that. So you create list and it's not a to-do list. It's basically a way to, to brainstorm stuff and create subtopics and sub-subtopics. And you can drill down into very, very tiny detail, but they only do that, right? So for example, I use it to create when I have whatever, when I want to create a new course or a new blog post or a new episode or whatever, I use that to, to put down ideas and it allows you to really drill down into specific topics. And anyway, they do it better than anyone else in, in the planet because they stay very focused on one specific job, one specific pain, and they say no to rest. I think I kind of see that a lot where you have companies that start off very focused and then start to think, what do we do next? And they over time become more and more diluted. Yes. And that's normal, right? So that's a very good point and something we need to address. So if you're listening to this and think, okay, that's all well and good. You, you, do, you do something very tiny, very small, very, very focused, but then, you know, all of those big companies I see, they don't do anything focused. They do everything for everyone. Okay, that's a fair point. The difference is, is that as you grow, the forces are different. So at the very start, when you start something or when you're a creator, a small, you know, a small business with not a lot of resources, you must radically differentiate if you want to have a strong chance of making people notice you, buy from you, recommend you and whatnot. Staying, you know, not standing out is risky not the opposite, right? So standing out is safe in that environment. But then the more the company grows, the more, you know, in the product, in a sense, you, 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 you kind of smooth out the edges, you, 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 you make the curry less spicy, you know, all of that stuff. The dynamics are different because then what you must build is mental availability. Meaning what matters at this stage is not that you're so different, is that people remember who you are and build mental, mental structures around you. Meaning that they think of when they are buying the category, when they are, you know, when they, when they want to buy a soap, they think of you first. And that's what you need to build. Like that's called mental availability. And at this stage, fame is more important than differentiation, meaning you can have a very average product. If you're a big brand, you are going to benefit from the market forces where people are going to remember you. Therefore, they're going to buy more from you. That's called the double jeopardy law. And that was, that's been talked about by Byron Sharp from the Ehrenberg Marketing Institute of Science. And basically the concept of the bigger you are, the higher the market share, the more people will buy from you, remember you, talk about you. And the less market share you have, the more people will shop around to different brands, the less they remember you, the less loyal they're going to become. So the bigger you are, the more you benefit from those market forces. And yes, it's not about radical differentiation anymore, unless you've milled out your product so much that you are seeing a plateau. In this case, what a lot of experts around brands advocate, like Seth Godin or Martin Umeir, who, who wrote the book uh, Zag, is to actually get a few people and put them in another office altogether and recreate this radical differentiation. So, so you, you get found and then you try to create something completely different that is both compelling and different and you start from scratch again. This is kind of the cycle of, of businesses. So yes, when you're a big company, you shouldn't really apply the same rules than when you are tiny and you need to be noticed. Is this normally mainly done in the product or can you do that specifically with marketing? 
So that's the golden question. Ideally, it's done with both. I think the biggest mistake, I mean, not the biggest, but one of the mistakes that I see companies do is they have an ideology. You know, they have a strong idea. They're telling a very strong story. They are trying to invent a new term, yet their product is completely indifferentiated. It's the same thing than anyone else in the category. If you do this with a lot of marketing money, you can actually manage to go through because again, you're going to benefit from the double jeopardy law where your market share is going to grow and therefore people are going to remember you more and whatnot. So you can get away with it. But if you are a small company, right, if you want to truly stand out, radically stand out, make people notice you because you have so many big players in the category, you must have a differentiated product and a differentiated story slash marketing, right? Mm -hmm. So you must have both. And that's when the magic happens. You have a product that does one thing or two things extremely, extremely well that no one else is doing. And you tell it, you tell the story, you pick a villain, you take a stand. Some people call it challenger brand. You know, there's other words to describe the same thing. You basically radically stand out against something else with a product that is unique and different. And that's when the magic happens. Like that's when you really start to see traction because you, you basically fulfill the promise you're, you're, you're giving. If you just have a good story with a shitty product, it's yeah. going to be difficult. If you have a very good product with a shitty story, it's also going to be difficult. But say I'm not the founder of my company or like the kind of C-level marketing director. How can I bring this sort of radical differentiation into my kind of work or like how can I radically be different on uh, the content I create, that kind of thing? So that's that's going to be difficult because unless your CEO, there is the board of directors agree, it's going to be extremely difficult to fight against it and try to to make them change their way because you know say they think most of the time that that doing safe stuff stuff for average people as Sergey mentions is is the safe option you know when when you go in a meeting in a brainstorming session you have eight people around the table you come up with a compelling and different idea the seven other people are going to find all the arguments they can to say well if you do this then it wouldn't work and blah blah they find excuses you know they got cold feet that's what happens so unless unless your ceo your founder people who take the decisions are 100 on board with this type of idea of say yeah we absolutely must radically stand out it's going to be an uphill battle that is going to be very difficult to fight but yeah. anyway let's say for the sake of the argument that you do have some sort of a, a buy-in and as a marketer inside a big company can do it there's basically four steps to go and, and to deliver that uh, kind of radical differentiation. So the first one is kind of the mindset, right? It's like you can't radically differentiate if you have some self-limiting beliefs that make you think that you can't, you can't, you know, standing out is not is is not that good of an idea. So to me, what you see, what I see a lot is imposter syndrome being the, the biggest one, right? I'm gonna be fine out. I'm not that good. You know, I'm I'm gonna be. I, I therefore procrastinate and never do anything. I I, I question my confidence. It takes confidence to actually take the step to radically differentiate. So letting go of your self-limiting belief to understand that actually what is standing out is the safe option, not the other way around, is kind of the first step. You really need to understand your expertise, your confidence as a marketer before moving on or else you're going to get cold feet, you're going to question yourself. It's going to be very, very difficult to, to go against that, right? There is other stuff like, you know, people are scared of, of, you know, what if people throw rocks at me, you know, when we do something that is a bit different and, you know, what if, what if everyone else is doing this way why are we doing it the other way you know you kind of conform and have this desire to stay in in a row because it's the way to do it and everyone else is doing this way so once you're able to kind of go against those self-limiting beliefs what you want to understand is is as a marketer or as a creator or as an entrepreneur is is your strength right so that starts with you what i usually give like the advice i give people on that the number one thing to do when when it's about like discovering who you are, what you stand for, your strengths, what you're the best in the world at, is to send an email to eight to 10 people in your network who know you, colleagues, past colleagues, friends, and ask them, according to you, what do you think is my kind of unique ability, the thing that I'm the best in the world at? And the reason why I always advise to do this is because you're going to discover stuff about yourself that you take for granted. And it's going to give you this confidence and clarity to keep going and to focus on things that you're very good at, which is also an analogy for the rest of the process. It's always like radical, radical differentiation is always about picking a few things, taking, taking, picking a few strengths, attributes, and going at it 100%. It's never about trying to fix your weaknesses. It's about celebrating your weaknesses, right? So when you're not good at something, it's not about trying to fix it. It's about doubling down on, on what you're good at. So the 
the the wrong solution i believe and i've read quite a lot on that recently is to use those kind of personality tests you know where you you basically answer them yourself they are proven to be bullshit they are not really going to tell you who you are what you stand for and, and your strengths really because they are stuff that you answer yourself i found the unique ability process to be much more revealing and and that brings you way more confidence than anything else so you know, the unique ability, so that's been coined by a group of coaches a few years ago. They have a very good process around it. And it's basically four stuff. It's something that you are that you have a superior skill in so that other people notice and value. Something you have passion for. So you want to use it as much as possible. You want to do it as much as possible. It gives you energy. You know, it's it's energizing for both you and the people around you. And then it's it's you keep you keep getting better and better at it, right? And the reason why it's so important to know that is because unless to show up every day, to be consistent, to create something that goes against the grain, to be radically different, you really need to know yourself very well to fight against all of those external battles and internal battles you're gonna have, you know, psychologically. So that's the first, I mean, that's the second step when it comes to identifying your, your strengths. And maybe I can stop there before going to the next, the next few steps, if you have any questions. Yeah, I think my question here is about, like, I can see the value of this for identifying your own personal strengths for building a personal brand. But what about, like, how does that translate into kind of business terms? Do I go to my clients and ask them what they think our unique parts are and double down on those? Yeah, so that's part of the the next steps. But the reason why I talk about this is because, again, as a, if you're a marketer in a big company, it's almost impossible to sell this. Let's be honest here. I mean, unless your CEO believes 100% into let's try something new, let's create a new project, a new product, and they put you in charge of that, it's going to be extremely difficult to fight it. So this methodology is primarily done and, and the best for folks who can take their own decisions, who have, who can create products and services themselves, who, who are part of a kind of a very saturated market. So, you know, you can think of coaches, creators, consultants, founders, entrepreneurs, all of those people. If you're not, if you are kind of working full-time and all, again, it's going to be, it's doable, but it's, it's a completely different ball game. You have to bring people on board. You have to create workshops. You have to convince them it's unless they believe it in themselves it's going to be difficult but yes part of the process is also to identify the strengths what people find unique about you but that's kind of the that's actually very much the next step right so i can go through that if you want okay i don't want to jump ahead like just yet what kind of things would you ask in the email like what's the specific email that you would send to people in your network to ask about your unique abilities is it just that one question yeah 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 you don't want to overload them with stuff because they are unlikely to respond after that so what you want to say is hey i'm trying to figure out what i'm the best in the world at from your perspective what is the number one thing that you think i'm, I'm good at like the, the thing that you say I, I would be in the best in the world at, or something that you find me extremely good at i can imagine that would be a scary question to ask for a lot of people um, if what if that person that you send it to doesn't think you're good at anything? They'll tell you. Well, they'll tell you as well, you know, but that's exactly, you know, that's the, the fear is present when you go through this process. But again, you can't radically differentiate yourself or the company you founded or the service you're creating without taking risks like that, without actually putting yourself out there. This process doesn't happen in isolation inside your head. It's it's all about reaching out to people in different steps of the journey, whether it's reaching out to people who know you, reaching out to customers, reaching out to competitors even, reaching out to people in the industry. It's You have to absolutely open up and, and reach out to other people. And this is why it's so difficult to do. And this is why so many, so few are actually nailing it. But the ones who do have gone against this fear of you know, people not responding or people telling them, you know, what they think. And you have to go past this fear or else you're just going to go back to a very comfortable creating stuff that are average that not a lot of people will notice. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any tips for getting rid of those kind of then self-limiting beliefs in this, your kind of step one? So it's the biggest thing, I think, in marketing. I've worked with a lot of folks in the marketing world. I've talked to a lot of people. To me, the biggest thing is this kind of huge impersonal syndrome coming in different directions. So the the tip is always to kind of understand first that everyone, almost everyone is going through it, right? Almost everyone has kind of these negative voices in your head saying something, you know, everyone thinks I'm an idiot. Everyone thinks I'm whatever. So there's actually five causes to imposter syndrome, uh, five kind of ways that it usually happen is like, oh, I want to figure stuff out on my own. If I don't reach out to others, I'm going to 
you know, I'm, a, I'm an idiot. The other side is like, I'm a perfectionist. So I'm, you know, I want to do everything that is so fucking perfect every single time. You know, it's like, I, I seek perfection, nothing else. Another one would be the natural genius side of things. You know, I like, you've always been told as a kid that you're like a, a genius, you're very smart. And then whenever you go through something that is a bit hard, you give up, you know? So everyone, I think, everyone thinks I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm not that good. So the tip that folks give around this is to, to kind of voice them out and externalize them. So the, the list is, goes as such. You need to say, whenever I'm in a situation where I usually experience feelings of dot, dot, dot. So for example, whenever I'm in a situation of where I need to publish a new blog post, I usually experience feelings of it's not going to work out. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not good enough. People are not going to care, you know, that kind of stuff. Or actually, no, feelings of anxiety, feelings, you know, fear, etc. The, the negative voices in my head start saying what I said. So, oh, the, the, the person's not going to be noticed. No one is going to care. They, no one is going to comment and like it. No, no one gives a shit, you know? Yeah. And, what I, and then the last part is what I typically do is, you know, procrastinate, never do it, never start, self-sabotage myself. I overwork, overprepare, et cetera, et cetera. So it's two, two steps. It's to normalize it, saying that everyone, literally everyone goes through this. It's so, so popular. I mean, as a feeling, everyone is feeling this way nowadays. And you need to reframe it. You, know? you need to understand that it can't be all or nothing, for example. Something that I, that I used to do quite a lot is like, it's either it's a super, it's a super popular thing or, or not at all. You know, I have no in between. But the standard should be different. You shouldn't really have in your mind, you shouldn't really think of I'm going to create a blog post that is going to blow up or, or it's a failure. No, you need to set standards and say, okay, we will be happy if this blog post gets 500 views, for yeah. example, you know, you, you, you create standards that are different. And the, the other one that I used to do a lot was the, the should statement. So I used to, to say, oh, I should, I really should do that. I must do that. And you kind of force yourself into this pattern of, of being super tough with yourself and you need to reframe it to something much more uh, subtle, which is like, okay, I'm going to do my best to do, you know, and this way you kind of ease up a bit ease up the, the the imposter syndrome but the best advice i can give overall is is to is to reach out to a therapist a counselor just talking about it openly helps a lot uh, there's a good site called betterhelp.com that 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 puts you in touch with with a therapist that can that can help you with that and then go through kind of a, a ways for you to to handle it and, and to kind of let go of this, this self-limiting belief that that kind of stops you from doing something radically different i think for me like i felt of course i guess everyone has felt like these things um but I know that now, you know, when I post on LinkedIn or I create a podcast like this, um, I just frame it as an experiment. So, you know, an experiment can fail and you still learn from it. And if I interview someone like you and no one else likes it, then I find it really interesting and I've learned, for example. Like changing your acceptance criteria is super important, super powerful. Like, for example, for you, instead of for the podcast, to take an example, instead of thinking, you know, I want all my episodes to have 500 listens, if you if you stick to the process instead of the metric and say, I want to publish every week without fail, you kind of dissociate process with the numbers and you start talking about what you can control directly, which is what you're putting out versus what you cannot control, which are everyone, everything else, what people think of it, whether they will react or not. The best thing you can do is ship something, learn from it, move on. That's what helped me tremendously at the start. I just forced myself to do it, to ship, 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 without thinking of views, listens, whatever. And when you focus on the process instead of, of the number, the metric, that's when, you know, you dissociate it and you change your standards, your, your acceptance criteria. That's when like imposter syndrome vanishes. I mean, for me personally, that's when, that's when it kind of completely vanished because I don't think of the outcome. I just think of what I can control. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's so easy to fall into the, the whole like trap of just checking statistics constantly, something I definitely do. That's very common, you know, yeah. it's normal to feel this way, completely normal. But again, just talking about it, other stuff like doing morning pages works really well. So you just, the first thing you do in the morning, you write down what you're feeling, whatever comes into your head without any editing, you know, grammar, whatever, just write, write, write for, for three pages. It's going to externalize everything to the point where you're going to feel much better about it because it's on paper. Writing down the opposite of what you're thinking about yourself works pretty well as well. You know, um, trying to externalize the thought that you have about yourself and trying to say, would I actually say that to someone else, to a friend? You know, a lot of people who say, oh, I'm such an idiot, I'm such a loser. You'd say that to yourself, but then would you actually say that to a friend of yours? Mm -hmm. You know, you wouldn't, you know, no one would ever dare talking about the way they talk to themselves, to someone else. And that's purely because that's when you can see the difference and you realize, hold on a second, I'm being crazily tough on myself. Definitely, definitely. 
Is this something uh, out just an interest of yours or is this like a, a process that you've had to go through yourself? What makes you want to learn about these kind of things and bring them into a process and teach a course about it? I've been through myself, I've uh, been through it myself and I, I, I completely, you know, suffer from it from time to time. It's not something that you can let go of. I think there's a lot of like famous writers and a lot of people who say, you know, after even the ninth, 10th, 11th book, I still have those feelings of shit, this one, this time I'm going to be found out. It's extremely common. So it just for me to solve it, it was important to me. And the other reason is because I think every single marketer I've talked to or the vast majority of, of people I've talked to suffer from it and I know it's the biggest barrier to actually fucking doing something great you know to radically stand out to actually do something people notice to to do work you're proud of to to create the shit you're you're proud of to create a legacy to to make people you know notice what you're saying it's just it almost always comes back to this very first barrier which is the confidence and a nice very powerful thing happened once you nail it is you you get used to it you know how to fix this feeling and therefore you just you, you just find new stuff that are more daring that are more different more compelling and more people react to it so you get addicted to it and you do more and that's when that's when you are in a flow where you're not scared of stuff anymore and as a marketer you create shit that create change that help people out that make them you know do something they couldn't do before and that's when it's a super nice feeling so it's an interest because i know this is the biggest this is a huge barrier for people in general you know i completely agree should we move on to the third step we should so okay once you once you know your unique ability your strengths like what what you're really good at what you what you what your passion is and and you remove your self-limiting beliefs that are you know standing out is risky and whatnot then you can focus on your people the market so i know you talked to april dunford on the podcast for example on positioning and and she talks about the fact that you, you must first pick a product you list down the features you you identify a few features and then you kind of identify the the market that would benefit the most from those features for radical differentiation it's kind of the opposite so the reason why it's the opposite is because if you only focus on the features you have and then try to find a market you will miss out on a lot of things that you don't do currently that maybe another market will enjoy much more that will actually be radically different that's the first difference the second difference is that you must lean on a as i mentioned before a frame of reference a competitor uh, a set of competitor a system or whatever to position yourself against and that's the that's the most important part as well so those two things but anyway we'll start with the market you could there's a lot of mistakes around picking the right the right market but when we talk about picking the minimum viable market a market that would really love what you're doing that is small enough to offer something different and compelling it big enough to so you can make money you need to start with pattern recognition looking at your best customers right so this advice is again for people who have a business who are offering services already who have some sort of customers that pay them already the the advice here that is usually given is to focus on the customers who pay you the most uh, who spend the most with you who 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 don't know your customer support agents and whatnot this is actually a bit of a risk because you might actually find untapped markets that are not necessarily spending the most with you but you could create something for them that is quite uniquely different right and so the the criteria that is actually super important here to to look into that is linked to your unique ability to what you enjoy doing is are they do you actually enjoy them you know do you like those customers those people or are they in pain in the ass are they interesting to work with are they a bit wacky or wonderful are they obsess over something you offer you know do they do you actually enjoy hanging out with them in a sense talking to them and that should be your first kind of criteria that's been shared on my podcast by alan dim for example or rock fitzpatrick or even seth godin they all mention the same thing and that's crazy important because again if you want to show up every day for a long time create something different you must kind of have passion for those people and yeah, they, maybe they don't spend as much money, they don't have as much money as others, but they would be the ones that you can obsess over for the next few years. So that's something not a lot of people would mention, but it's actually super important. And the other thing that I don't hear that often that is super important as well is the access or the knowledge you have about them. How much do you know about them? You know, do you know them? How many do you know personally? Do you, you know, do you have direct contacts with some of them? Are you in the market yourself? You know? Are you selling to marketer or when you're a marketer? It's, I see that a lot of people trying to start new stuff in a market that they have no clue about, you know? And that's extremely difficult because it's going to take you years to actually tap into it uh, and get to know everyone and whatnot. So that's a huge, a huge thing. So besides, besides the money 
you must kind of select people who, who you enjoy working with that you have knowledge about, right? And once you have that, you talk to them. I know that's been mentioned in your podcast before, that's been mentioned on my podcast so many times. You must ask them a few set of questions to truly understand who they are, what they believe, why did they bought from you, what was the kind of the job to be done that they had, the pain that they, that they solved with you. So it's what's interesting here is, is you obsess over your market first and then you kind of select something that would actually be compelling different for them. And you might have a product already and, and that's fair, but then the product that you have must kind of be modified somehow, simplified to kind of highlight the strengths that people like and whatnot. And so when I talk about talking to, to customers, you have a few questions that you must ask them and what you need to figure out. The one that I prefer is to truly understand the triggers, what made them start looking for a solution like yours, whatever you're selling. Why did they start looking? The start is so important because there was a trigger, there was a catalyst, there was something that made them decide, ha, I need to do something, right? I need to change something. I need to seek the change. So without it, it's just a job, not a job to be done, right? And that's critical. So it could be a pain that is getting bigger. It could be something that you want to do you didn't want to do before. It could be whatever else. So you understand this trigger. Then you understand the goals that they had, you know? Why did you pick? Why did you start looking? What was the, what did you look, what, what were you looking to accomplish? when when doing this you know when when picking our service or product what was the the goal that you had in mind right then you can ask okay now why did you pick us what was unique about us what was the one thing that you found that you know was different from the rest and then the the alternative question is always important so what else did you look into when you compare us with others, did you look into something else? And before that, what was the solution that you used before uh, starting to look for something new? What did you do before? In the B2B tech world, for example, most of the time people use Excel or an intern. I know that April Dunford mentions that a lot as well. So you need to understand all of that uh, different, uh, different stuff before actually picking something that is compelling and different. Understand why people buy from you because that's gonna be the, the ingredient that's gonna enable you to find something to serve the pain very well, to pick a specific pain and really, really solve it very well, to pick a specific job and really, really solve it very well uh, differently from the rest. And then a question that I don't hear that often that is super important is, what do they not trust about you, your industry? You know, Is there any tired cliches in the category you sell that they are absolutely sick of hearing about? What's been overdone? That's going to give us a little hint to what we can stop doing as a product or service, what we can elevate, what we can really mock and and go against to create a product or service that is yeah, both compelling and, and different. So that's the market side of things. You, you need to have kind of a, an understanding of what they're seeking to change and the job they have to, they have to do, right? And, and then it's a game of pattern recognition, looking at, looking at stuff that are in common. Do they all have the same pain? Is there a particular group of customers who have this pain or don't? Is there a job that they all want to do? Like, do they all want to increase conversion rates? Do they all want more leads? All of those questions. So it's really about looking at the common, the commonalities and then start to understand, okay, now that we know what is in common, the biggest pain, the biggest job, the alternatives that they look into, then we can start looking at, okay, how can we serve them the best that we are the only solution out there that does it this way. Well, is that what I love about this is that it's like, it's like the most kind of core thing to every business. It's like what everyone needs to nail to, to make a successful business. And I think it's definitely not talked about. I think even it's partly why April Dunford came up with her positioning exercise. It's like just no one properly talks about like proper, no proper methodology out there. That's at least I know with April, she's like before the reason I made this book is because no one else had laid it out before. So yeah. Think- and her book is, her book is specifically for kind of big companies tech companies and all of that right and that's why she's starting with the features that you currently have and then how to find the right market who would like those features that's fine but again that's not radical differentiation that's just positioning it it's if you have a product that is like everyone else create and, and select a few features that a few people will like you're going to have a better story to say but your product is not going to be radically different you know so you're not going to have both things so those are two kind of different and radical differentiation is a small way to do positioning, but positioning is much bigger. You can literally position anything to be, you know, slightly better, slightly more expensive, slightly different. It's not going to be radically different. So that's kind of the main difference between the two methodologies. How does that fit together with the kind of Andy Raskin idea of positioning old game, new game, 
and throwing away the old game and fighting against it. How do those things fit together? Yeah, so that's what we that's what I told told you a few few minutes ago when you asked about the product or the or the or the story. Andy Raskins also work with big tech companies with a lot of funding. So the the dynamics that you are facing are different. You don't necessarily need to be radically different. You just need to have some a good story to say that people will find you attractive and then your product might be like anyone else. Again, that's not and that's because you surf on a different market market force, which is the, the double jeopardy law where you want to grow market share. You don't want to be radically different. You just want to grow market share. And that's the biggest kind of difference. And so that works pretty well when you're in tech with millions behind you. I mean, the example that has been used to death is Drift, but that's because they were pretty clever to know how to, to tell a good story with a product that is not radically different from the rest. It's an online chat. They position it the right way, but nothing about it is radically different, right? But they grew market share this way by telling the story over and over again with tens of millions of, of dollars of investment behind it. So it's the same thing that we discussed before. It's You can stand out with a good ideology, a good story to say with a product that is quite similar because what you want to do is, is increase market share. But if you truly want to radically stand out and have a different product and a different story, then, then it's not the same methodology. You can't just tell a good story. You have to have both. That's so true. I've never thought of it like that. You know, you hardly hear anyone ever kind of say that that level of positioning is, is not right for everyone, especially new startups. So what's the fourth step? What's the, so what's the fourth step? So actually, once, once, you have, once you have this market in front of you, once you've talked to people, the mistake that people do is they, they go through the demographics. They only talk about their age and their job and whatever. Usually that doesn't matter that much. What you want to find out is you want to go for the edges of the market, of the people you've talked to. You want to know, understand who suffers the most from the pains that they talk to you about. What is the most common specific job to be done that they had, like the unmet goal that they had in mind? What was the most common, the one that was the most elevating for them, the ones that they were the most worked up about. Mm. Are they, you know, what at what moment were they the most emotional, where they were like the most, you know, worked up around the problem they were suffering from? What was the biggest change? You know, what was the, you know, the, the stories that you remember the most where they had a radical transformation? Were there any early adopters in there, like people who seek the new, who seek something different? It might not work for them, but they don't care. They like the thrill of it, you know? All of those questions, you want to go for the edges of the market. You want to go for those customers who truly have something, uh, a big pain, uh, an unmet goal that was quite huge for them, something that really matters to them. If you if you try to kind of create something for everyone that you've talked to, all of your, of your customers, then it's going to be, it's going to be quite, quite difficult to find anything that will be radically different. Okay, so when you found this, like the really big bad pain points, how do you turn that into action? So that's when, that's when you, you, you kind of work on a product that, is, that solves this very, very pain very, very well and say no to the rest. So that's kind of the blue ocean strategy methodology where you list out all of the things that a direct competitor or, or, or the leader in the space for this particular market that, you, that, you've, that you've decided on. What do they do? You know, what are the maybe 10 to 12 things that they tend to do regarding the price, the product itself, the journey uh, and stuff like that. So, you know, when, when you are, I don't know, when it's a restaurant, the typical stuff is that uh, you have to book in advance. You sit on a, on a table, you wait to be served, you get drinks. It's usually, you know, I don't know, for a, a burger restaurant, like a fast food, let's say, you actually go and order there. You can get so many choices. So you basically list out the experience. You list out the criteria, the value that people get, right? And then you look at what you currently do and you try to reduce or eliminate as much as possible, you know? So, and that's when it becomes super interesting. In Dublin, there is this restaurant called Benson and their, their menu fits on a business card. It's literally, do you want a burger or double burger? And what drinks do you want? Do you want a water, still water or beer? Mm -hmm. Like that's literally the choices that they give you. They clearly, clearly engineered that from the very start. What they created was, okay, we are in the category of like burger restaurants. We compete mostly against McDonald's and like Burger King. Without pretty much everything that Burger King and, and McDonald's typically do. And they just removed everything and kept one thing and do it very well. The pain that you have at the edge of the market 
when you are a burger aficionados, right? When you are someone who loves eating burger with your mates, when you love like beef and all of that, the pain is that in Dublin, there was no restaurant that basically enabled you to eat a good burger. Like genuinely there was not. And they just doubled down on that. They just doubled down on this pain and they said, you know what? We're only going to do this for you. You're not going to be able to get anything else, chicken burger, whatever. No, we only do beef burgers. And that's in essence what radically different companies do. They just focus on one or two things, do it extremely well, and they either reduce or eliminate the rest so that it basically elevates what you offer. You can see how you put 10 people in a room Let's say they're all investors of this company. They are planning to create a restaurant. You can see how you can find all the reasons in the world not to do this. Yeah. Like the fear is everywhere, right? But that's what I mean. It's like you must take a risk. You must take a stand and understand human psychology, which is the paradox of choice. The more options we have in front of us, the less we are willing to let them go. And that's because we are so scared of we might miss out opportunities. But what if people like chicken, you know, and they go with their friends and they only have beef burger, they're going to be so pissed off. And, you know, what if we offer salad as well? Because maybe, you know, and that's when you start adding and adding and adding and it just becomes average then. And, and, and the companies who do that differently, who understand that, who understand that, in fact, elevating one or two things and removing all of the other options actually create joy for people. The fact that you don't show them 20 options in front of them, the fact that there are only one option actually removes clutter in their head, removes the, you know, the pain of making a choice and elevates the benefits of, of what they are seeing in front of them. How does this kind of translate down into practical uh, marketing activities? Like, for example, how can you make your website fit this kind of radical differentiation oh, i'm wondering how i could translate this into a website well the website is is the is the message that you yeah, that you tell once you have a, a radically different product and story so it's about telling the right story uh, and the story is about absolutely what they used to do before picking an enemy and going at it 100 percent like the, the the website of 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 the restaurant that i that i mentioned i don't know what they say but I, what i would say is really position it against the villain, which is like the fast food restaurant that gives you a soggy burger. You want a good burger. You go to other restaurants and they basically offer the same thing. It's like overly cooked, but you're a meat you know, aficionado. You love your burger and you can't find anything else there. What if I told you that there was something else out there that was much better, but you know, and that's, that's what we do. And so it's about telling the, the story between the, as you mentioned, Andy Raskin, this methodology is pretty much on point. They are the old game versus the new game or the, the villain, what you're fighting against. You need to go at it. You know, you need to really, really compare yourself against a frame of reference because human brains use 20% of the sugar in the body, right? We, we, the brain uses so much energy. We try to, to, to save it as much as possible, right? And if you don't compare with something else, they basically have to think about what you offer from scratch. They have to say, okay, so you are that. And then, you know, it's, it's actually much more tiring for the brain. Well, if you compare yourself and lean against something else, you can elevate your benefits and really make it easy for people to compare you. And, you know, there's a saying, you know, like David was nothing against, nothing without Goliath, you know, mm-hmm. Goliath. That's exactly what it is. It's David on his own is useless. There's nothing interesting about him. Definitely. Interesting. I can see how it's exactly relevant to my, the startup I'm in right now. So I'm going to take that away for sure. Is there anything that you want to make sure you like get across before we sort of close up? But I just want to say that again, I think the biggest, the biggest thing is, is to, to be willing to, to ship stuff and put yourself out there and let go of this fear. I can't stress enough that in the marketing world nowadays, the mental, mental health is extremely important. So do talk to people, friends, people who understand you, therapists, counselors to, to really get yourself into a state of mind where you can actually do something radically different. I think that's the core message, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think doing that, especially like talking about those things, the last things we talked about, like taking those risks is like a big, it feels like a big risk anyway but i like what you said at the beginning like earlier that the risk is actually not being different yep and that's not me saying it it's like i'm not the smart guy here i'm, I'm literally just soaking up what other experts are saying said godin says that all the time all the people who wrote on differentiation over the last decades like martin Neumeyer who wrote zag or young me moon who wrote difference they all say the same thing they all say the same thing in nowadays with the clutter that everyone is experiencing online with the, the the low barrier of entry anyone can start a business you must stand out there is no if you want to be seen and don't struggle that much you have to have to stand out you have to take some risks thank you very much thanks for coming up talking about this